Welcome to the New Books Network. Sampayaneda, um, it's good to talk to you and um, have you here on our chats and linguistic diversity again. And um, I'm keen to chat with you today about your new edited book, Multilingualism and History, and which came out from Cambridge University Press earlier this year. Can you maybe tell us a bit about the story behind um, multilingualism and history? What made you embark on this book project? Sure. Well, first of all, Ingrid, it's great to see you. And thank you for having me again here. And I have um, a very short answer and a somewhat longer answer to your question. The short answer, this is the book I always wanted to read. And I was hoping that somebody else would write it or edit it. That never happened. But uh, the longer answer is that um, it's a very natural outcome of um, the way I see my scholarly trajectory. If you remember when we were junior scholars, our main preoccupations were I want to be heard. I would desperately want to be published. And then you go along and then you start thinking, well, what are the conversations going on? How can I contribute to these conversations? And then you go along and you start thinking, well, what conversations are not happening? How can we start them? And you and I have both been very successful starting some conversations about gender, identity, emotions. I've also been very lucky to start conversations about forensic linguistics in my field. And so it seemed like the path is very clear. You put together an invited colloquium, maybe a workshop. You put together a special issue, an edited volume, and you build a network of people and you get people interested and you get people excited. And um, I've always believed that history was another missing piece, but nothing was ever easy with history and multilingualism. Because when people heard about gender, and emotions and identity, it made sense to them. It was relevant. It was relevant to the present moment. And history seemed esoteric and utterly irrelevant to multilingualism of the digital age. So I've made a number of false starts. My colleague and friend, Alex Mullen, uh, who is a contributor of the chapter on Rome, and I put together a colloquium on history for the International Symposium on Bilingualism in 2011. That didn't go well. That's a while ago. That was a while ago. And then Alexandre Duchesne and Raphael Bertele put together a wonderful two-day roundtable on multilingualism in history in Fribourg. That didn't go anywhere. It didn't get much traction, even though it was great. Well, that's why... When we together that? a workshop on linguistic landscapes in the ancient and modern world at Oxford, invited Jan Blomberg, Adam Jaworski, lots of modern sociolinguists, and it became clear that people are speaking past each other. Historians and sociolinguists weren't communicating. And so I had to think long and hard, how do we start a conversation when there is a one side that is not interested in participating? So it was incredibly challenging. And so in 2019, um, I received funding from the Center for Multilingualism at the University of Oslo. And my colleague Pia Lane and I put together another uh, two-day workshop on multilingual practices from antiquity to the present day and invited uh, lots of colleagues, most of whom became contributors to this edited volume to see if we can all talk to each other and it became clear to me that uh, we need to work very hard to make history relevant to modern sociolinguists in a way you don't need to make the field of multilingualism relevant to historians who already are seeing the relevance. And so the long answer is the purpose of this edited volume is to make historic research relevant to sociolinguists in a very pointed way, because this research punctures, undermines um, the foundational myth of our field, which is that we live in a world that's more multilingual than ever before, where in reality, we live in a world that's less multilingual than ever before. And yeah, she's that's very obvious. Yeah, that's very obvious in the book. I mean, you've been 
successful on that front, no doubt about it. So um, the, this myth that we live in a more multilingual world is certainly put to rest forever for anyone who reads the book. And um, I, I absolutely recommend the book to um, to everyone who reads. So you've told us that the book itself is a bit of a conversation between um, sociolinguists and historians and maybe anthropologists. Um, and, and maybe you can tell us a bit about um, how it's actually structured in terms of what topics are being addressed and who the contributors are. Mm -hmm. So the contributors came from walks of life because by the time I organized the workshop, I uh, was already midway through my own book that I'm writing about the history of multilingualism. And uh, I've been reading the work of a wonderful people whom I admire, and we decided to bring them together. And the choices I made was not to be comprehensive, but to highlight what is novel and interesting. So, for example, um, the pivotal chapter by Ben Fortner shows the transformation of a very multilingual Ottoman Empire into a very monolingual nation-state of Turkey. It follows the transformation in a way that, for me, is emblematic of the main point made in the book. Susan Gell uh, talks about language ideologies that shape the ways linguists themselves work and see multilingualism, which is also very relevant. Um, Willemans, uh, I invited him to contribute a chapter on why Dutch failed as a lingua franca, because we love talking about Latin and English and French as lingua francas, but we never think about languages that were poised to become lingua francas and never became one. Why is that? So. For me, each chapter highlights a novel dimension in our relationship with language in ways that we sometimes don't talk about. But the progression in the book is chronological, from ancient Egypt to modern day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed is that there is quite, I mean, it's really restricted to the European context and um, a lot of the multilingual contexts outside the European world that we know about and that are equally fascinating and important are missing. Um, so what's your reason for restricting the, the book to the European, to European history? This is a really interesting question because uh, the way I see the book, it's not restricted to Europe at all. It starts with Egypt, which of course uh, is in Africa and Middle East. It focuses on Indonesia and Suriname, which are in Asia and South America. It deals with um, the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem in the Middle East. It considers Siberia, which um, is Northern Asia. So um, it was by no means for me uh, limited to Europe. We also had a chapter on China, which unfortunately didn't make it through a peer review. But having said that, I yeah, also think by the focus on Europe is that it is the it is the European world. I mean, sort of even ancient ancient Egypt, right? I mean, it's it's uh, geographically located in Africa, obviously, but at the same time, oh, ancient... That's ancient... not how historians think of it. It's the Mediterranean. Yeah, but it, it's, it's still part of what makes European history, right? In contrast to well, uh, colonial European... Outside the colonial world. Yes. If you want to include all of these interesting places in Africa, Asia, South America as part of our colonial world, then I would not call it European. I would call it a Western lens on the world from the colonial perspective. But um, the aim of this volume was never to be comprehensive and to show that multilingualism was here, multilingualism was there. Because if that's what I wanted, I would have edited a very different book. And I would have um, considered having a chapter, for example, on the medieval manuscripts of Timbuktu, because I find them incredibly interesting. It's a lesser known context, of the medieval to modern manuscripts found in Mali, but they do not add to the challenge I wanted to present to the field. 
So the challenge for me is not in the many contexts where we can find multilingualism, but in the story that we have been telling ourselves. And the story we've been telling ourselves is a very European Western story and we got it wrong. And I think uh, getting at the so house, how did we get the, the Western story wrong? Uh, my sense is uh, part of it is intellectual laziness, the forgetting, because our predecessors in philology who were more multilingual than we were and more aware of history uh, pretty much knew that multilingualism was a very old phenomenon. And my sense, we got the story wrong precisely when multilingualism stopped being the norm and it became unusual. And it was rediscovered in the second half of the 20th century as something so profoundly novel that we have to study it and we once again have to normalize it. While we forgot that once upon a time it was a way of life. So there was a lot of forgetting that happened in the early part and the middle of the 20th century for me and a lot of lack of intergenerational transmission. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I suppose it also has to do with um, the incredible dominance of English that we have been seeing as, as an academic language that emerged in the second part of the 20th century. I think that sort of led to a lot of erasure of um, multilingual knowledges that... Um, just no longer made it into the academic, into the sociolinguistic mainstream. Absolutely. And that unfortunately also extends to historians. And uh, in my introduction to the volume, I cite one very bitter German historian who says that American historians write the history of the colonial United States without looking at documents of those, you know, tiny European languages like Dutch and French and Swedish. Uh, not to mention Native American languages. So it has become acceptable to be a scholar of multilingualism while not knowing uh, more than one language. It has become acceptable to be a historian while being monolingual. And that is part of forgetting. So to an English speaker, multilingualism is an unusual phenomenon worthy of study. Mm -hmm. So it's, for me, a rediscovery of the wheel and a process of historical amnesia. Yeah, maybe we can talk about uh, amnesia a bit more. I mean, that appears, uh, that term appears a lot in the book. Um, another term I was fascinated with that you write about is there are ignorance pacts about um, multilingual contexts in the past. And maybe you can talk to us uh, a bit more about um, what the what kind of forms of amnesia are uncovered in the book about past multilingualisms? So what's new, what's new in, the, in the old history? Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, the terms of uh, ignorance pacts, I have um, borrowed from Joshua Fishman, who talked about um, the reciprocal ignorance pacts between sociolinguists and sociologists, which made sociolinguistics a very provincial parochial discipline. Uh, and of course, Fishman is still that generation of scholars who are trained in a much broader tradition than we're currently trained. And so when you spend a lot of time in the field, as you and I did, what becomes apparent when we started out in the 1990s, there were what, three journals focusing on bilingualism, and it was hard to get a publication in, but everybody was reading everybody else, everybody knew everybody else. Since then, uh, our own field, just like other fields, has experienced a tremendous growth. And the growth came with many positives, but also with many negatives, such as, to me, the fragmentation of the field and uh, the split into academic tribes with their own little conventions, their own publications, their own conferences. Bilingualism people, for some reason, meet separately from the multilingualism people. And uh, yeah, the, so, the sociology of sociolinguists of multilingualism, bilingualism live in a very different world from the psycholinguists. So, absolutely. 
And I think you're one of the very few people who actually bridge these two um, kind of perspectives, you know, the psycholinguistics and the sociolinguistics. So, um, That's a very kind way to put it. Uh, you could have just said you sit on two chairs and are risking falling in between. But I can see absolutely uh, the sociolinguists and psycholinguists don't respect each other. Right. Uh, so psycholinguists think that sociolinguistic language is pretentious and unbearable. Sociolinguists yeah, they just think it's not, ac- I mean, it's not academic research, right? It's not empirical. It's just um, Jean-Claude Dumont. And uh, by the same vein, sociolinguists think that psycholinguists are simplistic and uh, focused on laboratory experiments that has nothing to do with the real world. And I can see the concerns. I just don't see how you can understand such a complex phenomenon as multilingualism without understanding how it works in social contexts how it works from a cognitive perspective, and how it works from a historic perspective. Um, Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think one of the difficulties um, that that you raise in the book or that comes up in the book is, of course, when we look at multilingual contexts in the past, there actually is the question of where do our data come from and what kind of methods do we actually use? Because um, by definition, spoken word is fleeting. And so everything that we have pretty much is, um, you know, written records. And that, of course, limits it. So can you maybe talk to us a bit about the, the methodological challenges that we face in studying multilingualism? Absolutely. Um, the challenges, there are also advantages because uh, when you look at multilingualism in the past, it becomes very obvious to the degree to which we privilege the spoken word and do not think of writing as even worthy of attention. In reality, the data is uh, plentiful for many contexts. And as of today, there's still many little clay tablets and many papyri sitting there unread, holding precious information. And that is because until very recently, I would say middle of the 20th century, national uh, philologies, um, histories, archaeologists were focused. Everybody wanted to find literary treasures, famous religious books. And very few people were interested in administrative records, bureaucratic records, receipts, uh, letters. And eventually it turned out that um, there is a ton of information to be gained about all aspects of history, economics, politics, and also multilingualism from such trivial things as bureaucratic receipts, court records, administrative correspondence. And there are numerous contexts for which a lot of this information is available, and it also includes language policies. Moreover, when we look at evidence such as, for example, travel accounts by pilgrims, they also pick up on oral language practices. So, for example, a woman named Egeria comes to Jerusalem in the year 380, very soon after Constantine made Christianity official, and she goes to a service at the Church of a Holy Sepulchre. And she observes a very interesting practice because half of the Jerusalem population speaks Greek, the other half speaks Syriac. There are some people who are bilingual. The service is in Greek, but next to the bishop stands his assistant who interprets from Greek into Syriac. So it's the type of oral practice she describes. And then, of course, there are people in that crowd that interpret the Greek and Syriac for her into Latin because she doesn't know either Greek or Syriac. So um, the eyewitness accounts of these people bring very precious information about what we would call oral practices when translation was used. And the same goes for court records. So in particular, in the book, Jan Fellerer's chapter highlights the many underappreciated sources of information about multilingualism in the past, and that includes things happening in courts. So I would say there's still, at this point, more evidence than people looking at it, despite how narrow it might be in some ways. Yeah, I imagine one of the problems there is actually, I mean, going back to our um, 
our small multilingualisms or our our limited language knowledge is that many of these land so there just aren't very many scholars actually who um speak many of these languages or read them if you will and um and i think that's a challenge even for big languages that still have speakers today but i'm sure it's um you know, um, egregious for some of the languages you're talking about, like Syriac, for instance, or, um, you know, the, the ancient clay tablets you spoke about. I mean, these are really, really niche disciplines. Very much so. And uh, the problem that until recently, people also didn't talk uh, to each other. So there were papyrologists who worked on Greek papyri, and there were papyrologists who worked on Egyptian papyri. And they had their separate meetings. But as of recent, uh, there are many more. There are people, of course, who try to learn the other language, but there are many more collaborations. And digitization and digital collaborations made all the difference so that scholars could combine their expertise, talk to each other. So those are challenges that uh, are common to all studies of multilingualism, whether in the past or in the present. They're limited by the researcher's own linguistic repertoires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, that's... So maybe can you actually give a, talk to us about one of the examples in the book, like one linguistic context in the past that is featured in the book, that maybe your favorite study, and tell us a bit what you found and how... Um, how that research was approached and um, how it's related to our present understandings of multilingualism? Well, I would have two examples. Um, one is, um, and that you need to read the book very carefully to see that come out, is of course that in the world of 3,500 years ago, writing systems were few and literacy was scarce. So, for example, when archaeologists found the Akitad in the capital, the Egyptian capital of the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten, and they found a little place called the Letters of the Pharaoh. That was the Egyptian diplomatic archive. But the Egyptian diplomatic archive was on clay tablets in Acadia. So Egyptians, very much like the modern Dutch, didn't feel like they wanted to share their language with foreigners. They had numerous forms of writings. They had hieroglyphics. They had Hieratic Egyptian, later Demotic, but they were perfectly content to maintain their diplomatic uh, correspondence in Acadia, the cuneiform. And um, so it so happens that some of the first writing artifacts found in certain cities are in a foreign language. So, for example, in Jerusalem, the first written artifact is a cuneiform tablet in Acadian, which in the 14th century BC, people didn't speak in Jerusalem. It was a Canaanite language. Um, in my native Kiev, the first written document from Kiev has nothing to do with any Slavic languages. It's a letter in Hebrew. Wow. And um, found of all places in the synagogue in Cairo, in a place called the Cairo Geniza. But it was a letter from Kiev. Hmm. And so... In a way, we miss the very interesting fact that some of the first written documents existing in the world are already evidence of bilingual scribes. Mm -hmm. Because, once again, in the world where there are few writing systems, very little literacy, you depend on bilingual scribes to translate from the oral language to the written one and back. Mm -hmm. And so bilingualism was foundational to the development of literacy in a way. And that is not something we talk about. We kind of imagine the trajectory being the other way around. Mm -hmm. But people go on and appropriate scripts from other languages and make them their own. Um, but back to my own favorite chapter, it's a chapter by, I love all of them. I love the contributors. I love all the chapters. I am very partial to all of them, but. Oh, maybe I shouldn't ask you because you are the editor and I think it's yeah. hard for you. So let me pick my favorite chapter and um, let me ask you about that. Now, um, I also have to um, say I loved all of them and um, I'm 
partial to all kinds of chapters, but seeing that I have you here, um, I will ask you about one of your chapters, which also happens to be one of my most all the favorite chapters, a really, really, really exciting chapter um, about ghost signs. If I uh, may ask you a question, why did you find it exciting? Um, well, it was first interesting. of all, I'd never heard about ghost signs. I mean, so the, the term was new to me and that was just exciting. And um, I then actually went to um, read up a bit on it. And, and so I think that's just a really interesting way because it feels kind of archaeological. It feels like archaeology in language. And so that's what really intrigued me about it. And um, so it's First of all, the intrigue of the ghost sign itself. And um, I'll let you talk about what it is, actually. And the other thing that I really um, loved about that chapter was actually how it makes a connection between um, past multilingualisms and how we see those past multilingualisms and how they are being instrument instrumentalized and used in the presence to kind of project a cosmopolitan past, but also achieve aims of the present of being cosmopolitan without actually having the speakers there. And so it just, I mean, it's just like a, um, a thriller in many ways. And so that's so exciting about it. Thank you. Well, I happen to be a big fan of very random things like ghost signs and vintage postcards. So. I've always been an aficionado of history. And ghost signs are um, a very popular pastime, including in Australia. There are books about Australian ghost signs. You have them in Sydney and Melbourne. But in the majority of the cities, um, including Philadelphia, ghost signs of the past are consistent in language with the signage of the present. Many cities now have books about ghost signs and ghost signs tours. So for those of you who don't know what ghost signs are, they're very commonly painted, sometimes faded ads that have lost their functional significance. The business they're advertising, for example, is no longer there. The store is no longer there. But the sign is still there and people love them just for the aesthetics, for an immediate connection to the past. So Philadelphia now has its own ghost sign tours, which I took. Uh, London has ghost sign books. New York has two ghost sign books by now. Every big city that has any kind of history has its own ghost sign history now. And lots of ghost sign aficionados. But what I'm interested in are cities, um, and those cities happen to be in Europe, as we know it, that have changed hands in the 20th century. And so those are places like former Breslau, now Wrocław, whose German population was expelled and replaced by the Polish population. And now the current residents of Wrocław are beginning to rediscover the German ghost signs, recently have published a whole map of where you can find them around the city. But the capital of ghost signs, as far as I know, is the Ukrainian city of Lviv which before World War II was a Polish city of Lvov, and before that was the Austro-Hungarian city of Lemberg. And so the signs in Lviv are in German and Polish and Yiddish, three languages that are no longer spoken on its streets. And when you start seeing those signs, some of them very nicely repainted and spruced up, and some of them supplemented with folk ghost signs, you start asking yourself, well, what is the function of the signs if they're not really about Ukrainian history? What are they doing on the streets of a modern Ukrainian city? And that's how I um, got into this chapter. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And um, maybe you can also tell us how these ghost signs are kind of reconceptualized today in Lemberg, Love, Leave, or... Um... Well, I uh, spent a week in the city in 2019 um, uh, taking tours, talking to people in all sorts of languages. Um, my native language is Russian, but I also speak Ukrainian and Polish, so 
interviewed people in Russian, Ukrainian, Polish, English. Um, I also read many websites that go with places that showcase the signs. So some signs are really fairly abandoned and they're very random. And some signs have been very lovingly restored in um, 2012 in expectation of the soccer championship that took place in Ukraine and Poland. And the story behind the signs that is often told on the websites um, of, for example, a cafe where I visited, is that this is um, a story of how multinational the city of Lviv has always been and an example of tolerant coexistence between Poles, Ukrainians, and Jews. And that is a kind of statement that doesn't make sense on many different levels. Um, first of all, because Ukrainian language is missing from the signs. It was not very much in use in signage before World War II in a Polish city. Secondly, we all know of historic antagonism between the three main populations, so the coexistence was by no means very tolerant. The multilingualism was real, it was there, but it was hierarchical. If you're a Pole, you may learn German, but you're not going to learn Ukrainian or Yiddish. But if you're a Jewish, you will have to learn everybody else's language in addition to Yiddish and Hebrew. Even more importantly for me, the signs that make this very smooth artificial transition from a Polish to Ukrainian city obfuscate the amount of violence that took place in the city during and after World War II that transformed a historically Polish city into a Ukrainian city by virtue of um, genocide of its Jewish population and ethnic cleansing and deportation of its Polish population that interestingly mostly went to Wrocław after the German population left Breslau. Even some of the monuments were moved from Lviv to Wrocław. And I, um, in, mm -hmm. yeah, now can I just share a really interesting story about how these imaginations actually change um, the imaginations of people. Um, two of my colleagues, um, Sasha Davis and um, Jamie Hunt from the University of Newcastle, have been doing oral interviews with um, the people of German heritage in Australia. And what they found is that most of the people who they are interviewing actually have their roots in Eastern Europe. So outside what is today Germany. Hmm. So for instance, Breslau, but um, even further east. So as you know, Königsberg. it was- hmm? Königsberg is a good example. Yes, absolutely. So sort of all over Central and Eastern Europe, there were these German speaking populations and um, many of them, um, you know, left for Australia after the Second World War. And so what they've discovered in the oral history is that these people say, yes, our grandparents came from wherever, wherever. But when they now um, think about going back home, they actually go to what is today Germany. So they don't actually go back to the land from which their forebears come because they don't see any any connection to that place anymore. So that place is no longer a German space. And um, so they go to Munich or Hamburg or wherever in Germany, because that's where they kind of feel a connection where they can practice the language and um, enjoy what they imagine as the culture of their um, ancestors. Interesting. And that, of course, makes perfect sense because we don't just innocently reimagine history. We sh reshape people's perceptions of what happened in the past. And that, to me, is uh, what the signs are very successfully doing. And they're creating, they're using basically someone else's history. In this case, the history of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that was cosmopolitan, the history of multilingual Poland, to give a very respectable aura of cosmopolitanism to a modern Ukrainian city that is by no means very tolerant. And um, one interesting thing I noticed in my one week of field work was that I could find lots of science in Yiddish and Polish, 
and some German, and of course many modern signs in Ukrainian, but I found not a single sign in the language of the largest linguistic minority of the city of Lviv, which is Russian. You can hear it on streets, there are tours for Russian tourists, but there's no signage of Russian because uh, Lviv has been successfully derussified. And it's that kind of intolerance that is hidden behind the facade of the welcoming multilingualism of the ghost signs, mm-hmm. which to me made for a rather interesting story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so fascinating how the past is always entangled in the present, and I think that comes out beautifully in the in the studies of the book too. And that kind of also answers the question you kind of rhetorically stated at the beginning of this interview, like, you know, why should anyone care about history or people are struggling sometimes to care about history. But I think what these studies in the book really show is that um, we are not free of the past and the past is, you know, part of our present and it will be part of the future. And so, um, Let's maybe actually turn to the future. Now, um, the book is not, not, I don't know, not in the business of predict, predicting the future, but I think historians certainly, um, you know, are, are in the business of understanding developments. And I guess um, now that the book kind of finally has laid to rest this idea that we are more multilingual than ever, um, I it actually shows me less multilingual. I mean, you you've you've no pointed that out quite beautifully too. I guess one of the questions I have then is um how do we think about technology in this context? And um do you sort of see us on a trajectory towards like universal monolingualism? I mean, there are lots of people who sort of predict that with all these technological developments and, um, you know, the overbearing learning of English everywhere in the world, very soon we won't actually need multilingualism anymore because um, we can just use Google Translate and if that fails, we all speak in English with each other. Is that where we are headed? Well, um, One of my absolute favorite writers and thinkers, the late David Graeber, um, published a wonderful book about the history of debt, of all things. And in that book, he started out by saying that um, in the early 2000, 2006, 2007, he's been to numerous conferences where many experts presented exciting social theories of how um, the new developments in securitization and new information technologies will change our world, the concept of power, economy, reality itself, and everything will be different, and our financial institutions are so different. And then in 2008, the world crashed. The very painful economic crash that no amount of technology could have prevented because at the heart of it are still people, their shady practices, the lies they tell themselves and each other, And so I think that by thinking about multilingualism in terms of technology, we cannot arrive to very meaningful answers because the human element is still there, will always be there. And if we are heading toward um, a greater assemblage of monolingualisms, I don't know if we're ever going to speak a single language, But we're not getting to be more multilingual either in terms of linguistic diversity or in terms of um, multilingual populations, which we can see in statistics going back to the 19th century and comparing them with modern statistics. Uh, I think the development is ideological. It's uh, for the first time in human history that humans have been convinced that my language is my identity, my language is my language of the heart. I don't need to speak any other language. Well, maybe English if I'm not a native English speaker. And it's okay. And it's a good thing. My main concern is that linguistic nationalism has become so pervasive that we cannot unthink that. And that is what driving uh, modern developments. The technology can serve this. um, But in the world without modern technologies, people who wanted to remain monolingual always found a way to do so. 
the Ptolemies in ancient Egypt uh, wanted to continue speaking Greek, so they relied on mediators, interpreters, um, bilingual clerks. And historically, that's always been the case. If you want to remain monolingual, you can do so if you can afford. So, yeah, that's right. If you don't have the privilege to do it, right? I mean, um, I think you have to be fair or extremely underprivileged to be able to remain monolingual. But um, monolingualism is a privilege. And I think that's, you know, that's something we also need to think about. But I guess going back to the technology question, um, as you, I think, um, absolutely astutely and correctly point out, um, the belief in technology is, is ideological. However, um, it affects us in many ways, as we are seeing across the um, Anglophone world in particular now, sort of a further winding back of languages programs. I mean, there is ever more language instruction in schools and universities. So many universities are giving up language programs. And one of the justifications for actually further reducing their language learning offerings is actually because we don't need it anymore because, you know, technology will take over from, from actual people. And um, that, of course, I guess, I mean, I guess your book in a way shows that that bears the danger that we are further alienated from actually understanding the relationship between language and social participation? Well, I think that um, the disadvantage you and us both have, uh, we both live in an English-speaking world where language learning is indeed being reduced um, as we speak. If you look at other countries, uh, English language teaching programs are on the rise and people are clamoring to learn more and more English, if not other languages. So I am not concerned um, about this per se. What uh, concerns me are other developments that sociolinguists prefer to ignore. And it's the whole... Um, so one goal of this book was to show that our field is based on a great lie. Our foundational myth, we study multilingualism because there is more of it, is a lie. We studied because it became not normative. That's why we studied not because the world is more multilingual. But the other thing that has me concerned is the hypocrisy at the heart of our field, where um, on the one hand, we see linguistic diversity as something just so incredibly positive that we need to celebrate it. We celebrate, presumably, each and every language. And at the same time, we are the people, we are the generation that developed the concept of language police language inspectorates like we have in the Baltic Republics and now in Ukraine, people whose job it is to make sure that certain languages like Russian are not used and whole populations are being told not to use certain languages. This is what I'm interested in. And my book tries to trace the development of the idea. When did language policies change from telling people what to speak and what to use to telling people what not to speak? Because that, to me, is a groundbreaking, innovative idea. Well, let's tell people what they should not, never speak. And that begins in the UK, and it moves on to Spain, which is a great practitioner of the idea of telling Arabic speakers, no, you cannot use your language, and then we'll deport you anyway. And it found a new life in the post-Soviet space where... Um, it is presumably acceptable to tell certain people not to use their language. So it breaks my heart to see war in my homeland of Ukraine. It broke my heart to see Russia invade Ukraine cruelly with no justification. Nobody can justify that. But it also breaks my heart to see the Ukrainian government using the very same invasion to push forth language policies that have been unpopular before and making them popular, taking down every monument to the Russian writer, every plaque, reducing the uses of Russian language further because it's presumably the language of the enemy and not the language of the population. And that is something that no sociolinguist 
comments on because presumably that is okay. We are okay with linguistic nationalism in certain forms. That to me is hypocritical. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, difficult, um, a, a difficult question, I would say. I'm, I'm not sure that there is no comment. Um, it's just that there are actually so many different contexts and um, telling people what not to speak, I don't think is entirely new to our generation. I mean, it's certainly happened with indigenous languages um, no, and Americans. Uh, yeah, it's not new since the medieval times. It's the Middle Ages that come up with this idea. And then we practice it in different contexts. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a bit of um that's a bit of a, a gloomy note to kind of end on. So I'd um I'd like Well to... we live in a gloomy world these days. Uh, that's true, that's true. We live in perpetual crisis, I guess. But um let me maybe ask that's one more question that I wanted to ask about something mm-hmm. in the book. So let me just ask that one before I before we close this. And um one thing that really intrigued me was um, the chapter by Alex Mullen about um, a Latin multilingualism. I've studied Latin. Um, it's my first foreign language. I, I learned it before English. I love Latin a lot, and I've always been aware that um, the Romans were a bilingual population, and you know they valued Greek probably more than they did Latin, but that. Um, for, for the educated, at least, um, bilingualism in Greek and and Latin was very, very normal. But one thing that I discovered in the book and that I hadn't quite realized, although I know the context and the language involved very well, was that the Romans didn't actually have a word for bilingualism and multilingualism. So they they were, you know, they, they were not, they were bilingual at least, but yeah, um, they the, didn't the need anything exist for them. And so, although... But the concept existed, it just, um, uh, there was a Latin expression, Utrecht lingua, the either language, both of our languages, yeah. that was sufficient because everybody knew it refers to the Greek Latin bilingualism. And it's very much like in the modern day United States, when you say bilingualism, nobody thinks of an abstract concept. Everybody thinks of Spanish English bilingualism. So it was what was relevant and interesting to them. They didn't worry about, you know, linguistic diversity and multilingualism at large, but they thought very profoundly about all different aspects of bilingualism and what it means to speak about that particular bilingualism. And I think that there may be some wisdom in that, actually, because, um, you know, the more we the more we learn about multilingual and bilingual concepts, I think the, the, the clearer it becomes that maybe there actually isn't a unified concept of bilingualism and multilingualism. As you say, in the United States, it's um, Spanish and English in other contexts, it's something else, but it's always context specific. And um, the forms it takes are so different, actually, that I'm trying to fit it all under one term is, of course, useful in many ways, but at the same time, probably hides as much as it reveals when... Yeah, well, if you think about multilingualism, it has always been a slippery term because it means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Linguistic diversity, it's about the diversity of languages, but multilingualism could also mean linguistic diversity, could mean multilingual country where people speak different languages. We use it to call cities multilingual, even though their populations consist of elite monolinguals and many immigrants who speak different languages, but somehow that makes for a multilingual city. So for me, it's not about is it a unitary concept, but the question is, why do we need this concept? What do we instrumentalize it for? And what are the shady things we're doing with multilingualism? Yeah, exactly. So what's next for you, Anita? You mentioned that you you were halfway through your monograph about more than halfway now yeah and where are you when is it coming out well uh i have to finish it first 
it will come out after. I'd be very surprised if it did before. Uh, so it's a history of multilingual societies, but written with a more general public in mind, uh, with no, you know, little references in the text and no academic terms, but lots of stories of people. I'm, of course, I still had to do my own research, had to retrain myself for years as historian spent fascinating time in the archives around the world, in Sweden, in the rare manuscripts room of the British Library, had some of the best times of my life, looking at love notes sent by Catherine the Great. Um, oh, in which language did she Exactly, exactly. Her being a native speaker of German and non-native speaker of Russian <laughs> and favoring French. She could write in all three as that her oh. and the notes were in French. Uh, that oh, you're not having that away yet. I was thinking was actually in her native Russian, which she was very fluent and was very flirtatious, perhaps even inappropriate for an empress. Oh, so um, got to see lots of interesting things and. Uh, I would never envision myself as a historian, but since nobody is an expert in all of these societies. And I wanted to ask my own questions that were not asked by my colleagues uh, who work in historic context. I figured that, yeah, I'll write my own book. Even if I'm its only reader, I'm writing it from myself. Uh, I'm sure it will find a wide readership. So when can we expect it? Probably in two years. Mm -hmm. Because um, there's always, you know, one more article, one more book I have to read and I have to modify this and change that, but um, it's uh, closer to its end and it's just a way of using history to ask fundamental questions about who we are and how our relationship to languages is ever-changing, how we change ways in which we think about language and how for many years in the field of multilingualism we made certain assumptions look universal when they are in fact not universal, very, very context specific, including assumptions we make about language and identity. So it's a way to rethink the field as well for me. Well, I can't wait to read it, Anita. And um, thank you so much for this conversation. And um, I I warmly recommend um, multilingualism and history to all our listeners, I'm sure that you, you're in for an enjoyable ride and um, we'll wait for the next one. In the meantime, let's continue the conversation. Thank you so much, Anita. Thank you so much, Ingrid.